welcome to History Factory Plugged In, the podcast at the intersection of business and history. I'm Jason Dressel, and we're back with a new season after a hiatus. It's good to be back. And today we have Professor Stephen J.A. Ward, who is an internationally recognized media ethicist, historian, and award-winning author and editor of 10 books on ethics and media ethics. And as you might have guessed, we were keen to speak to someone who would have a unique perspective on a little company we now know to be Meta. And I was very grateful to have this conversation with Dr. Ward. It's been an eventful couple of weeks for Facebook and Meta. On Friday, uh, November 5th, we're recording this on Monday, November 8th. And on Friday, a quick search of the day's news found a wonderful potpourri of headlines, including PR nightmares like Delete Facebook, How to Quit Your Facebook Account Now from Forbes. This deception must end now. Facebook gets letter from 500 health professionals demanding data on COVID misinformation from USA Today. And not to be outdone, is Facebook bad for you? It is for about 360 million users, company surveys suggest, reported in the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal article reported that researchers at Facebook concluded that for one in eight users of the product, which is 360 million people, people are engaged in compulsive use that is impacting their sleep, work, parenting, and relationships. And even in the context of internet and social media addiction, users perceived Facebook to be worse than any other social media platform. And two weeks ago, reports came out that Facebook staffers have been extremely concerned about the effect that Facebook has had on the polarization of society, the January 6th insurrection, and the effect that misinformation is inciting in terms of creating uh, the rise of extremism, authoritarianism, and violence around the world. I'm sure the name change to Meta was totally coincidence with all of this, but reports and data revealing Facebook's effect on the health and well-being of both people and our social and government systems and structures, and the consternation that has has apparently existed among company staff are continuing to mount. So with that, you can appreciate why we were thrilled to have Dr. Ward join us. His research is on the ethics of global digital media, the rise of extreme media, and the impact of these trends on democracy. Dr. Ward is Professor Emeritus and Distinguished Lecturer on Ethics for the University of British Columbia. He is Founding Director of the Center for Journalism Ethics at the University of Wisconsin and Co-Founder of the University of British Columbia School of Journalism. Dr. Ward was a war correspondent, reporter, and newsroom manager for 14 years and has received a Lifetime Award for Service to Professional Journalism in Canada. He is the author of many books, as I said before, including the award-winning books Radical Media Ethics and the Invention of Journalism Ethics, and he is the editor-in-chief of the Handbook of Global Media Ethics. So, with all that, let's listen in on my conversation with Dr. Ward. Well, Dr. Ward, good morning, and thank you so much for joining History Factory Plugged In. Happy to be with you. Thank you for asking. Well, well, first, if you could maybe just summarize uh, your your work as a as a media and uh, sorry as a media ethicist and, and historian, and what compelled you to to focus on this topic. Well, yeah, my approach is uh, I'm a philosopher first and foremost. I'm a historian, especially of ideas. Secondly. 
I'm an ethicist third, and I've been a journalist. And uh, so I'm a journalist who, uh, who loves philosophy and a philosopher who loves media. And so my approach is more on the philosophical level. You know, I'm not a media economist, I, you know, and, and all those, those very hard uh, empirical issues. But I'm interested in, uh, in ideas because I believe ideas do influence very much uh, how we act. My ultimate aim is, is, is it can be very laudatory. It, uh, I don't mean to sound uh, uh, that way, but I mean, I just feel like I'm one of those souls out there that is trying to make for a better world, a more humane world, and hopefully a, a media that can lean in that direction despite all the obstacles uh, to getting there. Um, so I, I tend to write, I've been writing, I, I, I write about the past, write about the future, I've written history of journalism ethics, so I enjoyed that, but now I'm more concerned about the future, where all of this media world is going. And so I, I tend to write about what I think needs to be done. I talk about global media ethics. I talk about how can we have an engaged journalism that is engaged and protective of democracy, but not just simply biased. Uh, and uh, issues around what do we do about demagogues? What do we do about intolerant voices? Uh, those I don't have foolproof answers for. I've written about it. I have some ideas on it. Uh, I think it's it's an evolving set problem. Yeah, and and, and how would you characterize? I mean, you've you've insinuated a little bit right here, but how would you characterize the current state of quote media as a as a broad category? And yeah. how is it different, or or how is it consistent in terms of what you are seeing from from region to region around? The world, and and as you alluded to, particularly the parts of the world that are free speech. There's a diff- great great differences. Uh, I would call both media and media ethics in a state of, of fragmentation. Uh, we're 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 in a difficult, in terms of ethics at least, uh, we're in a difficult state of transition. We're trying to get from a non-global, non-digital, professional ethics formulated 100 years ago to a digital global ethics for anyone who does journalism. And that's the very difficult transition. And how we do that is, is, is what keeps, keeps me wondering, keeps me up at night. Uh, media has become a too inclusive term. It used to have a very specific sense. It was the news media, and they were quite recognizable. It was folks who worked at CNN and, and The Economist and, and, and local newspapers. Uh, so uh, media now responds to sharing of information, social media, all that. So I don't think it's a very useful term. I prefer to write, I do use the word media, but I tend to write about journalism, trying to isolate that aspect where you write for a public on serious public issues that are, are very important. And even that's not much of a, much of a definition. Uh, uh, but then you can say, okay, that's what, I, that's what I think journalism is. Now the question is, when is it good? When is it, when is it bad? So that's one of the things, but what happened, you have to go back to historically, to the beginning of online journalism, say, let, let's just say the turn of, turn of the, this century, when it was coming, coming as a force. And what happened was we had, what happens is that journalism burst through the walls of professionalism, through and away and beyond professional newsrooms. And the result was that lots of citizens had now the technology to do their own reporting, to do their own journalism, uh, to, to share their own opinion, and get information way, way beyond the BBC and, and CNN. That at first was heralded as democratization of media. 
It was good that the big, bad mainstream media were not going to tell us what to think anymore. Right. What happened by about 2010, if you, if you, you know, you can argue about these dates. What we started to see was, hey, intolerant groups, state actors, authoritarian governments, all sorts of people said, we can use it too. <laughs> and so we get a toxic, a toxification of what was a, such a sort of an optimistic, we the media atmosphere. And that's what has happened. We've, we've basically, uh, we've, we've become, uh, uh, public channels have been very much damaged. And I think by anti-democratic forces generally. So I fear for the future of democracy, not just in your own country. I mean, I, I fear for it in any way. If, and so, you know, if you ask me also, how does it differ? Well, yeah, we, when, you, when you go to different countries or you do it online, this is, there is variations on which problems are the most important at that given time. But they're all worried about this toxicity. They're all worried about how is it ethics even possible in a world where, there is, where it's way beyond professional control. I'm, I'm curious, Dr. Ward, how... Are, are there other periods in, in history that you see as a comparison to where we are now, or are we truly in uncharted territory or in this, you know, new millennium with, you know, these new resources and we're trying to kind of jerry-rig a, a, a sort of approach to media that was established in, in the 20th century? Um, is it all a completely new game or do you see some other historic parallels to where we are today? Yes, uh, yes and no. <laughs> Typical intellectual reply. Yes. Uh, uh, the, the it's answer, all shades of gray. <laughs> yeah. Uh, l- let me say there are parallels, very interesting parallels. And the first one I can think of is, well, let me just say, when any new form of information media comes on and takes over a country or countries or a region of the world, you will get great controversy. And so it was. When the first daily newspapers arrived, 18th century France, England, and so on. Uh, this new public source taking power away from what the parliaments and the kings could say was everyone in the elites were saying, who the hell are these guys? You know, who are they to challenge us? And so from the 18th and 19th century, uh, you have a huge battle for freedom of the press going on. And it's only, we forget, it's only in the late 19th century that, you know, Napoleon and controls come back on, so on, uh, that we, we, we finally get a, uh, a fairly free media, although then it becomes heavily commercialized at that point. Uh, so there is, there was a debate, there is a debate at the beginning of, of, of the first public communication medium of newspapers. Then what happens? There's another one, interesting one. At the beginning of the 1900s, what happens is the commercial media finds, finds a new model, the commercial model, it becomes based on appeal to sales, sales of newspapers, and so on and so forth. History is well known. I, I, I'm sorry if I'm going over too much. Uh, and, and what happens is that the, the public and government both become very, very concerned about the public media. And so there's a threat from government. They did it with film. They brought in, the government brought its own codes in on American film. Uh, but they were threatening that if the Hearst Empire, if the, you know, the, uh, the other great press barons and their newspapers weren't going to be, quote unquote, responsible and not, quote unquote, yellow, <laughs> uh, that in fact, uh, there was a threat they were going to impose uh, those things. And this, this 
we can come back to this, uh, with respect to Facebook. But uh, and so at the same, so what happened was uh, the first modern ethics becomes born in the 1920s, the 1930s. What happens is that journalism associations and entities in the United States and then in Canada and Europe start writing codes of ethics. And why? To pacify public concern that, no, we are professional too. We have ethics. We serve the public. It was both true and not true, as every ethics, ethical statement probably is. Uh, and so what happens is that we have modern ethics, but it's, it's a century old, and it's still based on a, the sort of the, the very nice, nice language about serving the public. And that was basically a, polit a cultural politics. It was an attempt to use uh, norms and ethics to, to maintain it. I'm not saying it was all insincere. I think many journalists were worried about the effect of business on journalism at the time, but it wasn't always entirely sincere. It was trying to protect your, your back. At the same time, it was very, very, it was what I call a closed ethics. That ethics was decided, what the code said was decided by and within professional newsrooms, by professionals, changed by professionals. Media councils were run by professionals. And I would argue that's gotta change. But that's, that's, those are two areas where great concern over media. Today, it, it's, it's the same, but I think it's of another order of importance because of the power of global media and state actors and other people. And so we have now a global, powerful uh, thing. We also have cultural and sociological things that journalists can't do anything about, which is the political divisiveness of society, uh, which they may contribute to. But I mean, the, the, you know, we've known from the 70s that, that in fact, this has been growing. Uh, and so there's, there's what I call structural issues here, that, that in fact, journalists can't, even if journalists today in the United States all decided to be perfectly ethical human beings and to follow the codes lightly, it wouldn't solve all the problems because the, the content is being made outside their newsrooms and, and because there's so many other, uh, you know, uh, desires by groups to, to divide divide and conquer, as it were. I, I think the one thing I would come back to, and I don't have a, a real good answer to this, is, is is it even possible, does it make sense to talk about media ethics anymore in this environment? Because Why, would, why sense, wouldn't it? If, it? if it can't, if it's not effective is what I mean. If, if you can't develop a, an accountability system outside professional journalism, even within professional journalism, where the behemoths of Facebook and Google, but also lots of just, just intolerant groups and websites are beyond, in some ways, quite beyond the traditional uh, methods of accountability. Uh, then you have to ask, well, how do, how do, how do we actually do this? I, I mean, there, I'm, not, I'm not a voice of uh, despair. I think there are things we can do, but I'm just saying that's a question uh, that is, is legitimately asked. Going back to your, your point about the role of ethics in this brave new world, I mean, when yeah. I think about Facebook and, and Twitter and, and Google and the other, you know, obviously large global technology platforms, I, you know, I, I think of them as sort of in the context of radio and then television and and you know the the, the television companies or or and and the networks they were the distributors of technology that enabled the distribute the distribution of information um and you know when, when you think about you know the news you know the news was was largely thought of as kind of a sort of civic 
um, responsibility of the networks to deliver the news. Uh, it was not where they were generating their revenue uh, necessarily. Um, but obviously, uh, and, and to your point, they themselves were not necessarily the journalists, but they were employing journalists and then providing a platform for 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 journalism, almost as a as a um, uh, as a as a you know quid pro pro, if you will, to society, while also delivering a lot of other uh, content on their on their platforms. And obviously, with the rise of, of social media over the last 20 years, it's created all kinds of different sort of challenges and opportunities, as you noted, with the democratization of journalism and the ability for, for different content to be able to be distributed. But there's also some very sort of traditional concepts here of how these monies generate revenue through advertising. And I'm just curious, sort of what's your perspective on that in terms of the role of, of journalism and ethics and sort of that balance of how things have changed, yet a lot of things haven't changed because at the end of the day, there's still this kind of kind of societal agreement that uh, these organizations are dependent on companies advertising to generate their revenue. Uh, and those companies are making calculated decisions on essentially what kinds of content and what kinds of programs they want to associate their brand with. Yeah, yeah, I mean... This is this is one of the oldest problems in commercial journalism. You can go back to, like I was saying, back to the late 19th century when they decided to take up the business model. I'm not against the business model. I just want it balanced with other models, uh, uh, like good, strong public broadcasting, which is is in many countries is declining. It's not it's not getting stronger. Like yeah. like and 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 certainly this. My my view is that look, uh, if I could just pick on Facebook for a second, okay. Uh, What's happening there is totally predictable from what you just talked about. If, you know, if in fact your model is, is to have media power and to make profits, of course, uh, and so on and so forth, then that's late capitalistic media monopoly. And what do you get? Well, you get actors who are not going to tell you everything they're doing. They're going to lie to the public, <laughs> misinform the public, be economical with the truth, use whatever favorite language you like. And so I'm not surprised that the uh, you know the uh, I'm sorry the whistleblower uh, uh, come up with that information. I mean it's good that it comes out. I, I tend to believe that most of it is true. Uh, and so the so the question is, what do we do about this? Right. Well, traditionally there was external and internal. You had sort of two ways to go on this. External, but I mean laws, <laughs> changing the laws of media, changing the laws in which they operate. Uh, and so I'm not sure any of them would work these days because I'm not sure they would have the political uh, support. For example, uh, you could bring, you could go back and talk about antitrust legislation to break up the monopolies. Uh, how much support that would get? I, you know, I don't know. Uh, there is uh, also you could talk about diversifying ownership in some way. In Canada, the government actually puts money into new startups, into uh, ethnic journalism, and so on. I think that would be controversial in, in the United States. Uh, uh, I think you could do legal penalties. I think you definitely could reconsider stronger whistleblower protections that, you know, not just for criticism of government, but criticism of corporate medias. And that's, I think that's in the wind right now. That's, that's, that's being discussed. Uh, internally, it would be that there was a belief that, well, what you can have is uh, public editors, that 
people can complain to inside the newsroom. There are ombudsmen, as they are called in other countries. There are media councils. Well, guess what? They rarely exist. They don't exist in the United States. Well, I have to be careful that New York Times has some and stuff like that. But in Canada, we and what? Why do we cut back? Money, corporate, yeah. corporate profits. That's why. So uh, you know what is so you know you could have in what you could ask for is enhanced public accountability measures by these very large companies if they're going to be granted a somewhat monopoly or, or a full monopoly of things. For example, I, I you know, this is just me blue skying. Whether what happened, I have no idea. I mean, you could actually ask for a national public review board for state, uh, you know, for, uh, for state uh, uh, concerning media compliance with a whole bunch of laws and stuff with some sort of penalties you could attach to it. Yeah. You could talk about why doesn't Facebook jump over everyone else and declare that it's going to establish a review board, ethical review board, independent, not their own people, of ethicists, of public, and so on, who will get access to inside the place and make sure uh, they're dealing and doing what they say they do. Well, you know, I don't mean to sound naive, but I really don't know if that's going to, if that's going to happen. There are, what I'm saying is, is there's ways of thinking of how to resuscitate accountability, but they're they're coming up against very powerful financial and political forces. Yeah, well, and there's also there's 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 also seemingly structural um, challenges because to your point and based on what you were sharing, and I tend to think about sort of market driven solutions because ultimately, you know, regulation can always not be enforced, right? And so. You know, our conversation reminds me of um, of Wikimedia, the Wikimedia Foundation, and I had the pleasure of, of talking with them uh, in our last season of our podcast and talking and learning more about Wikipedia. And you can imagine in the Facebook uh, sort of ecosystem this ability for there to be user-driven fact-checking, which would be a very complex thing to set up potentially, but it doesn't mean it's technically impossible. But it's discordant with the business model of wanting to continue to drive people down a path of engaging with the kind of content that they want to engage with and their sort of opinions to be kind of reaffirmed. And then also that to be fed into, obviously, you know, advertising. I agree. Uh, And I think that why I've been calling for lately... um, uh, for something I call the public participatory ethics, is that you've got to take ethics. Not you, it can't all be controlled by media corporations and, and 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 professional journalists. What I mean by that is that society as a whole starts to do what I call a macro resistance to toxicity and 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 these sorts of these problems in the media, and that means that citizens start to see themselves as having both a right and a responsibility to evaluate and reform the media. And then the problem is you've got to find structures for them to do that in. Uh, another aspect that, that definitely has to be brought in, in my view, is, is uh, reforms, fundamental reforms to educational system and the teaching of media. Right now in Canada, it's mainly an add-on. It's a surplus and it's badly done. I can't believe that in a world that is created by media almost, uh, <laughs> that we're not at the very earliest grades have a very good modules of teaching and letting these students know about the implications of, of the media, where not only where it comes from, 
Secondly, there's lots of technological, you know, market-driven or technological uh, ideas. Uh, there are now there are now big data computers that can tell that can track media news around, say, Canada, United States, on any given day, and you can program the computer to, uh, to tell who it was, where it came from, their record of reliability, their political allegiance, blah blah blah. That should be in the hands of everybody. It's 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 partially there. Some websites will have things where you can look at the providence <laughs> of the story. Yeah. As it were. Uh, right. But it's, well, what the problem is not that there's no fact checkers out there. It's not that there's no media ethicists out there. We're not, we're not, we're not collaborating. We need to collaborate. It's okay to say, well, look, I can think of something to help. Let's just improve the fact checking at the Toronto Star. Okay, that's great. Bravo. But why, how about we have an we, we We do this across the country and we let citizens be part of that. Yeah. With respect to, to, to Facebook, uh, they, they've, they've had a rough, they've had a rough run the last few weeks. Uh, you, you mentioned <laughs> the, <laughs> you, you mentioned the whistleblower and, and of course that's referring to uh, the, the reports that uh, Facebook uh, internal staff have been quite alarmed and quite upset about the uh, effects of, of misinformation uh, on, on, uh on political systems really around the world, but of course, especially here with the United States and the the, the January 6th insurrection. Um, there was a report on, uh, I believe on, on Friday, about also the impact of, of misinformation on public health with, you know, driving content that is further discouraging people to uh, being, to trusting vaccines. There was also uh, a report on Friday about, you know, all kinds of concerns with 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 uh, confidential and, and private information. And there was also uh, uh, news in The Wall Street Journal uh, about uh, Facebook's awareness of how addictive the platform is and its impact on uh, social or on mental health. So basically, you know, you have a product that's facing criticism for misinformation privacy and and being addictive and and toxic to your health other than that <laughs> um, it was a good week for the pr team there but and and so you can imagine why they've changed the name to meta right but i'm curious you know we, we've talked in these kind of broad sort of historic parallels but as you think about facebook and now meta's predicament does it remind you of a of a specific company and brand that were facing these kinds of complexities and challenges um, well, all companies have gone through crisis, as you know, uh, whether it be uh, plagiarism you know, at the New York Times or, or something like that. I have, I can't, maybe you can, I, I have trouble thinking of a company that as a whole has taken such a, a, a kicking <laughs> uh, on everything. I mean, you haven't even mentioned their insensitivity to uh, setting it up in India, you know, say, oh, never mind that cultural sensitivity stuff. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so... Uh, uh, I, 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 you know, that that's I can't think of one. Uh, maybe I'm I've just gone brain dead. I mean, certainly the Hearst newspapers came under criticism, but they didn't. Yeah. You know, the news even I mean, even the newspapers. What you know, the, the news wasn't as bad <laughs> against them as, as as could be. Well, I think it's the scale. I mean, the you know, this is where the scale of the platform and the technology, you know, to to your point earlier, has now created this. Um, you know, it's created this this avalanche, if you will, and it almost feels like the uh, the, the rooster's 
coming home to roost with a lot of these issues that have been. Yeah, we, we've uh, known about this. Sort of head, head, heading towards this pinnacle for, for, for many, many years. Oh, yeah. I mean, people have been warning about, you know, Google and Facebook and their power for a long time. <laughs> this is, it's because of the whistleblower finally yeah. provided information. Get back to media. I, I, I don't, I know I sound negative, but I actually, I, I, when I'm not despondent, <laughs> Uh, I, I see lots of good stuff out there, but the problem is the good stuff tends to get lost in a sea of angry voices and cacophony. And people only notice the bad stuff. When I go to parties or social cocktail, well, I don't go very much uh, lately, but when I do talk to people, they all, if you just say the word media, you get like a harangue of what's wrong mm. with the media. And you're going, yeah, okay, okay, there's good stuff out there also. I mean, even in ethics, uh, there's some really nice developments. I mean, there's, there's something. But has that all? But has that always been the case? I mean, do you, or 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 do you no. find oh, it, it began? Of that, it, 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 no, I would imagine I mean, pol- politicians have probably all always rendered that reaction. Yes. Um, have, have media uh, pro- forever probably politicians and lawyers have been consistently, um, you know, not not well received as a topic of, of discussion at a cocktail party. Has that yeah, changed yeah. over time with with media and journalism? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I have my personal experience. I, I mean, you could you could during the seventies and uh, investigative journalism and Nixon and all that. People were really proud of yeah. their journalists. Forget it. After that, I mean, it went down there hill from down there, and, and not and it shouldn't have, but it, it did. Yeah. So I know it is it is worse, but I don't care. I got a thick skin. I, I've been a journalist <laughs> uh, for a long time. Uh, I just simply go, yes, you're right, but listen, you should watch this rather than don't watch that, watch, watch this. I mean, I was going to say that, you know, examples of good stuff in ethics uh, as opposed to media. Uh, there's groups like the Ethical Journalist Network in London, which are doing fabulous work, getting going around the world, getting journalists together to talk about hate speech. How do you cover that? Or how do Pakistan journalists and Indian journalists prevent, you know, the, the worst types of misinformation and hate speech going uh, and getting duped into the government's uh, line. I mean, lots, lots of, we need uh, a complete revolution in the types of guidelines that we have uh, because the codes we, we developed and still have, and my handbook did a study on it, um, there is very little in the codes about globalized global media and very little about the global impact of media. There's no discussions about, well, what is your, your duty as a journalist if your story is going to cause violence or cultural unrest in another country once you publish it, right? There's none of that. Uh, and uh, also, what is your duty as a journalist? Does it stop at the border? I, I tend to think of myself as, as a global journalist, but not, not all do. What would that mean to be a global journalist and, and work that out? And how do we cover pandemics? How do we cover immigration? How do we cover issues that are global? Well, good luck finding that in a code. Uh, uh, and so there is this whole, what I call global media ethics, a change of identity, yes, but a change in practicality and how we cover this stuff. Uh, it's also what's really we don't have is cultural, uh, cultural journalism that is, is informed, both cross-border, but within our own countries. We have plural societies. For example, in Canada, how do we cover the First Nations or the Aboriginals? We have a history we've got to deal with. We put them in schools that were genocidal. We forced them to integrate early in the 20th century. We now know there's dead bodies everywhere, buried babies and, and young uh, Native people. It's, it's horrible. And no, most of those rooms are not Aboriginal. <laughs> and so there is a huge problem of how do we report on that? Well, you got to know something about 
and these peoples and their peoples. There's not just the Mi'kmaq. And the yeah. And, and the same thing. How do you cover the Sikhs in Vancouver? How do you cover you know the French minority where I live? And and then you can and you and and what what I what bothers me I guess if I had to say it to be honest I used to run a journalism school, so I know a little bit about this. Is that much of what drives it is technology? You've got to get the students to learn how to let, uh, use the latest app for mobile editing. Well, okay, that's important. Yeah, that's a practical skill. They're going to need that, but cultural knowledge is not there. They don't know anything about the world they're going to report on. Mm. Comparative religions, uh, you know, Islam, uh, history of Islam. Just, I don't want them to be experts in those areas, but they need to know the state, you know, something about these areas. Uh, so that's part of my my my, my spiel. Mm. Well, it's such an incredibly complex and, and layered topic. I mean, if you could boil it down to kind of a couple of key takeaways. What would you want everyone to know? Uh, journalists or citizens, or does it matter? Citizens. Ah, I want them to know that they are not powerless. That if they form organizations and coalitions, they can have a difference. I always stop at the end of my talks and say, especially to the young people, don't shrug here. Don't just say it's all big bad business. And, and we're all part of this and we can do things. And I have some ideas. They may be utopian, but I have some ideas, and, and, and you can develop them. We can work together because we need digital democratic citizens, and we can do that. Uh, but but only if we work together. And this is this is my continual uh, spiel. I mean, if you, on the other hand, I think we we either do this or some very bad things are going to uh, going to come about. My great fear. And it's 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 a very general fear. It's just one, the end of our species, the nuclear holocaust, because we're so parochial and fighting each other and can never get along, uh, or a decline into authoritarian dystopias, uh, maybe like Orwell, uh, where in fact uh, we'll all be fighting for the last uh, uh, piece of uh, piece of, of uh, clean water or whatever. That is apocalyptic, and I, I certainly don't hope. My what gives me what gives me hope is. Uh, that people, the resiliency of human beings and even democracies, but the, the young people that I talk to, and, and they have a, a sort of a global, a more global take on the world than, than I did when I was there. So uh, we just fight the good fight, I guess. Well, thank you, Dr. Ward. I appreciate all of your insights and, and the thoughts. Um, let's, uh, let's leave it there and, and fight the good fight. So thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you very much. That's our episode. Thanks again to Dr. Stephen J. Ward for our conversation. And uh, good to be back and look forward to more episodes coming soon from History Factory Plugged In. I'm Jason Dressel.